0: Our reading today is taken from 1 John, chapter 4, verse 7 to 16, and is found on page 1,227. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. We also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. We know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. Thanks be to God.
1: And you might like to have the outline of the talk um, which is um, on the morning service sheet and we're just going to attempt to explain one man, the Apostle John's one-line reflection on Jesus Christ, which is the one where he says that, verse 14, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Saviour of the world. Well, a few days ago we celebrated the birth. Of Jesus Christ, his arrival in human form in this world. And at the time of Jesus' birth, there were various initial responses. The angels said to the shepherds, a saviour has been born to you, he is Christ the Lord. The shepherds saw him, spread the word concerning him. All who heard were said to be amazed And the shepherds went home glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen. And then turning to Luke's account, which is largely based on his primary source, which would have been Mary, the mother of Jesus. Remember, it says in Luke 2.19, how Mary treasured, up all these things and pondered them in her heart. Mothers have fantastic memories concerning their infant children. Maybe you saw it on display if you had your wider family visiting you this Christmas, or maybe you've been to visit them. And then there's Matthew's account. There is the response of the Magi, who'd been on the lookout far away in Babylon. The star appeared, they legged it to Jerusalem and then to Bethlehem, and then they bowed down, it says, and worshipped him and presented him with a variety of gifts. Herod's response, as we know, was adverse. He knew he was not the kosher king of the Jews, he was an Idumean. Uh, But word had reached him that the legitimate king of the Jews had been born. And so, being the rather paranoid person that he was, he arranged to have him, his rival, killed. And all the baby boys in Bethlehem were slaughtered. But back in Jerusalem, Simeon was overjoyed at meeting the young saviour, and Anna, another faithful oldie, longing for the saviour, spoke about him. So much then for the initial reflection. But what about the mature reflection of those who uh, got to know the adult Jesus and lived with him? What did they have to recall towards the end ...of their lives. They were the major witnesses. What do they recall? Well, we know what some of them thought... ...because they are the apostles... ...and they wrote the New Testament. The apostle Paul. I'd love to know whether Paul actually encountered Jesus... ...in person as an adult during <laughs> Jesus's earthly life. He did encounter the risen Jesus but he was probably in Jerusalem at that time. But who knows? We, can, we don't get told more than we need to know. But his reflection is this, as he wrote to the uh, young Timothy, just before his own martyrdom. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's how Paul sums him up. Peter, in 2 Peter 1, aware that he will, quote, will soon put aside the tent of his body that he was in, writes, we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He'd seen Christ transfigured, and he had seen the risen and ascended Christ. And the one I'd like to focus on this morning, as I've said, as we prepare for a new year, is that of the Apostle John. He lived well into the last decade of the first century. And before then, he wrote these words. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Saviour of the world. John was one of Jesus' cousins. His brother James and he were the sons of Salome and Zebedee, and Salome was the sister of Jesus' mother, Mary. John was, with James and Peter, one of the closest apostles to the Lord Jesus. According to a bishop in the 2nd century, century AD in Ephesus, who he writes about, John, who reclined on the Lord's breast, and after being a witness and teacher, notice the order of the words, fell asleep at Ephesus. According to Irenaeus, it was at Ephesus that John gave out the gospel and confuted the heretics. And it was at Ephesus that he lingered on till the days of Emperor Trajan, who we know reigned between 98 and 117 AD. So he lived around 70 years after Jesus' public ministry and his death and his resurrection and ascension. And this is an example of John's mature reflection on the meaning and the purpose of the Incarnation. Incarnation is one of those words which we borrow off the Romans. Literally in Latin, it's incarnate, which means in flesh. In other words, in bodily form. So the Father sent the Son to be the Saviour of the world. A straightforward statement about Christmas in which four nouns stand out. The Father, the Son, the Saviour and the world. The world, or cosmos, in the language that uh, John wrote in. And in John's writing, it is a disordered world. It is John's term for a godless society, which is displeasing to God, and is under his judgment. It's under his judgment because he's a just God. He's also a God with a heart, And he sees the damage that human selfishness and sin cause. And in his letters, the two dominant characteristics of this world are pride and covetousness. Pride. We forget we are created by the creator to live in dependence upon that creator. It may seem blaringly obvious to us, but we resist that because it impinges upon our autonomy. And this leads us to live as if we were the Lord and giver of our own lives. The other dominant characteristic is covetousness, which causes us to desire and possess all that is attractive to our physical senses, often pleasures not necessarily at all wrong in themselves, but become so as all-absorbing attention is given to them. So we think we know better than God, and we follow what may be a good desire in the wrong way. Let us imagine how some of these might play out, just to give us a reminder of the mess that it all causes. You may know that uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Four Loves. He bases it on the four different words that the Greeks use for love. English is quite a sort of uh, limited language. but The Greeks have four words. Friendship, brotherly love, erotic love, and sacrificial love. Driven by erotic love which in itself is a good thing, we may miss out on what is a more appropriate expression of love, friendship, and brotherly love with someone, because we eroticize love all the time. And this may lead to adultery, which may lead to an unplanned pregnancy, which may lead to the termination of life. Not just the adulterous relationship may break up, but the original marriage or marriages involved may break up. Existing children may be deprived of father and mother living in harmony together. Mental health may be adversely affected, life chances reduced, abnormal behaviour increase, and the whole cycle is repeated from one generation to another, There is a big push at the moment by the British Pregnancy Advisory Service to admit, uh, permit abortion on demand for any reason right up to the time you're in labour. Well, go down that road, and what's to stop infanticide? The killing of newborn children, should they be deemed in some way Defective or deficient. And at the other end of life, with the care of the elderly and the infirm potentially expensive and human resources limited, pressure can build up to have a policy of bumpers off at 80 or whatever age is deemed to be expedient. We've had our four score Time's up, here's your end-of-life pill. Far-fetched, but not really. The whole thing is driven by those in power, those in the driving seat, all done to suit what is the most convenient for them. And, of course, us. Francis Schaeffer once expressed this kind of attitude to life as summed up in terms of personal peace and affluence. What gives me the least amount of hassle while I get to keep the most amount of my wealth? Living at peace and living without want are good things for anyone to aspire to but not at the cost of a trail of destruction, of wrecked lives, all down to human sin and selfishness. The film director, Oliver Stone, fought in the uh, Vietnam War. He, uh, he'd volunteered, but it was a real eye-opener. and his film, Platoon, was a counterbalance to John Wayne's The Green Berets. And through the character of Charles Taylor, who's a private played by Charlie Sheen, Oliver Stone gets his message across at the end of the film, as he's being casevacked out in a Huey helicopter, with Barber's adagio for strings playing in the background. He reflects on what's been happening to him. These are the words. I think now, looking back, we did not fight the enemy. We fought ourselves. The enemy was in us. The war is over now for me, but it will always be there the rest of my days as I'm sure Elias will be fighting with Barnes for what Ra called possession of my soul. Those two, Elias and Barnes, were sergeants. One was sacrificial and principled and good, and the other self-centred and pretty evil. And one killed the other. And Oliver Stone, through the person of Taylor, says, There are times since i felt like the child born of those two fathers. But be that as it it may, those of us who did make it have an obligation to build again, to teach to others what we know, and to try what's left of our lives to find a goodness and a meaning to this life there is little doubt that in a disordered world, we need a saviour. Being saved, in biblical terms, means being rescued from a situation that we cannot save ourselves from. I can't recall myself quite being in any such situations, though I have come close to it. And on two occasions, helped someone who may otherwise have ended up dead. One occasion was at school, and because I was hopeless at cricket and athletics, I discovered the opportunity to be a lifeguard. Which just meant I sat and sunbathed, overlooking the pool, until Boggett arrived. It's too take too long to explain why we called him Boggett, but. Um, Anyway, he was an extremely good left winger, sort of Stanley Matthews type, real good at dribbling. But Boggett wore glasses, and he was arriving at the pool for the first time. I saw him approach the pool at the shallow end. I could see he looked at it. He must have read it was three foot deep. He took his glasses off. Then he walked to the other end of the pool, where he didn't see that it's nine feet deep. Boggett couldn't swim, so I discovered later. He jumped in, he went down. He did not immediately come up. He did come up, gasping and flailing all over the place. He went down again. At that point, off comes. (laughs) You can just imagine the Baywatch body then (laughs) dives into the pool. And uh, I recall to myself, What I'd learnt the weeks before, diving to the bottom of the pool in pyjamas and going through rings, and uh, most important of all, remembering that when I come up, I need to be behind him so that he can't drown me. And there we are, Boggit and Brillo, which was one of my nicknames when I was at school, to do with hair, lots of it. And uh, we explode onto the surface, Boggit is saved well this situation we as human beings find ourselves in is a good deal more serious one in which we cannot save ourselves one in which God has to rescue us and salvation is essentially freedom it's liberation it is freedom from guilt we know that we're in the wrong with God because we know we have done things that break his heart And mess up our lives and the lives of others. Lives which He has given. And then we think, who is there to forgive us for those things? Freedom from judgment. We're all familiar with assessment. Even if you're as old as me, you can remember being assessed every year from the age of seven, probably to about 27, and for some people, even longer. There's a standard, match it and you're through. You progress on. But the problem with God's assessment, his judgment, is that just one mistake and we're contaminated goods. There is no omittance into his presence if we are going to pollute it by sin. There's freedom from self-centeredness. Focusing on ourselves and what we want means that we do truly shrivel up. Life is not what it should be, not what it was designed for. We've got the wrong focus. We need the big picture. We need the great cause. There's freedom from fear. Most of you have been, hopefully, with friends and family over Christmas Being alone, particularly being alone in the dark and not knowing quite where you are, is a horrible thing. Death is a solo journey. No one accompanies us. We go it alone. And what then? And finally, there is freedom from death, eternal life. But how do we gain eternal life? And this is where the Son comes in. The Son is the saviour that we need. And he is both God and man. There's an interesting analogy of the incarnation of Christ that can be taken from the film Avatar. I heard the analogy in a podcast by William Lane Craig. And I think it may help some people understand this important Christian doctrine. Craig was debating um, a Muslim... And he wanted to help the Muslim audience understand how Jesus could be both God and man at the same time. The Christian doctrine of the Incarnation states that Jesus is one person who possesses two natures, one divine and one human. But Muslims sometimes struggle with this concept, thinking that if Jesus is human, he cannot be God. And this is where the movie Avatar comes in. The hero of the film, Jake Sully, is a paralysed man who cannot walk. As the film progresses, Sully is able, through technology, to take on the nature of one of the natives of the planet Pandora, the Navi. Sully's mind unites with a Navi's body. And for the rest of the film, he is both human and Navi. He possesses two natures. Like Jesus, Sully is one person with two natures. Sully can do things in his Navi nature which he cannot do in his human nature, like moving his legs and physically connecting his mind with the planet Pandora. And likewise, Jesus is able to do things in his divine nature, such as raise people from the dead and still storms, that he cannot do in his human nature. Unlike like any analogy, it has its weaknesses. But it helps us to understand why we need a human and a divine saviour. A human being who can represent us before God. Who's one of us. And yet, a divine being. Because we need a perfect substitute to be effective for us. And carry the penalty of our sins when the great exchange takes place, that he takes my sin upon himself and is punished for it. And in return he gives me his righteousness and I benefit from it. Whereas I was in the wrong with God, now my impediment has been removed. I am in the clear. And the New Testament, as we know, uses a whole range of metaphors to try and uh, get insight into what is happening when Jesus dies on the cross for our sins. There's a commercial metaphor. I'm in debt, and now he has paid off my debts. There's the slavery one, where I am trapped, but I've been redeemed by another paying the price for my freedom. There's the ritual one of contamination, but I have now been cleaned up. And of course, at the heart of it, there's the judicial one. I am guilty, facing an impossible penalty, but someone who is innocent and perfect has been prepared to pay that penalty, to suffer the sentence for me. As John wrote just in four verses earlier in 1 John 4.10, God sent his son Well, in the NIV, it says atoning sacrifice. A more precise word would be propitiation for our sins. Propitiation means to avert God's wrath against the damage that sin causes. And it involves the removal or the expiation of sin from the sinner's life so that he's in the clear. And how did this rescue mission come about? Well, the father sent the son to be the saviour of the world. The son didn't come of his own accord, nor did he wrest salvation from a rather reluctant father, and he was not forced to do it. No, they decided the plan together. In the last year or so, as Her Majesty reminds us in her Christmas uh, talks, we've remembered the centenary of the end of the First World War and the 75th anniversary of D-Day, the day that marked the invasion of Europe, which marked the inevitable end of the Third Reich. It's quite possible that a wife at the time of the First World War, had to let her husband go off and pay the ultimate sacrifice. And then in the Second World War, to let her son go off again to war. It's not difficult, is it, to imagine what went on in that poor woman's mind. The pain of separation the grief at the loss in the First World War, and then after the Second World War, to see her son return, victorious, one of those who liberated Europe, who had emptied the concentration camps and enabled an outburst of new life. The father sent the son But the Son knew what he was doing. He was all part of the plan. The Father and the Son were separated on the cross as the Son bore our sin. In doing so, he solved our problem. And to show it worked, he was raised from the dead and now leads those he's liberated back to life with God the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. As we come to the end of 2019, I ask you, do you need a saviour? Or are you grateful that you have one? If today you find yourself in need of one, then we simply have to confess our sin and believe that Jesus has dealt effectively with it. And then we join with others who have, in conforming to the life of Christ, expressed their gratitude for their salvation. We pray, Heavenly Father, that all this would be true of all of us. Amen.